0: Welcome to this Uvila Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 8 Chapter 15 It was such a small thing. A tag of ragged stuff looped about a length of splintered sapling. Ross climbed stiffly over the welter of drift caught on the sand spit and pulled it loose, Recognizing the string even before he touched it, that square knot was of McNeil's tying. And as Murdoch sat down weakly in the sand and mud, nervously fingering the twisted cord, staring vacantly at the river, his last small hope died. The raft must have broken up, and neither Ash nor McNeil could have survived the ultimate disaster. Ross Murdoch was alone, marooned in a time which was not his own with little promise of escape. That one thought blanked out his mind with its own darkness. What was the use of getting up again, of trying to find food for his empty stomach, or warmth and shelter? He had always prided himself on being able to go it alone, had thought himself secure in that calculated loneliness. Now that belief had been washed away in the river, along with most of the willpower which had kept him going these past days. Before, there had always been some goal, no matter how remote. Now he had nothing. Even if he managed to reach the mouth of the river, he had no idea of where or how to summon the sub from the overseas post. All three of the time travelers might already have been written off the rolls, since they had not reported in. Ross pulled the rag free from the sapling and wreathed it in a tight bracelet around his grimed wrist for some unexplainable reason. Worn and tired, he tried to think ahead. There was no chance of again contacting Ulfa's tribe. Along with all the other woodland hunters, they must have fled before the advance of the horsemen. No, there was no reason to go back. And why make the effort to advance? The sun was hot. This was one of those spring days which foretell the ripeness of summer. Insects buzzed in the reed banks where a green sheen showed. Birds wheeled and circled in the sky. Some flock disturbed, their cries reaching Ross in hoarse calls of warning. He was still plastered with patches of dried mud and slime, the reek of it thick in his nostrils. Now Ross brushed at a splotch on his knee— Picking loose flakes to expose the alien cloth of his suit underneath, seemingly unbefouled. All at once it became necessary, to be clean again at least. Ross waded into the stream, stooping to splash the brown water over his body, and then rubbing away the resulting mud. In the sunlight the fabric had a brilliant glow, as if it not only drew the light but reflected it. Wading farther out into the water, he began to swim— not with any goal in view, but because it was easier than crawling back to land once more. Using the downstream current to supplement his skill, he watched both banks. He could not really hope to see either the raft or indications that its passengers had won to shore, but somewhere deep inside him he had not yet accepted the probable. The effort of swimming broke through that fog of inertia which had held him since he had awakened that morning. It was with a somewhat healthier interest in life that Ross came ashore again on an arm of what was a bay or inlet angling back into the land. Here the banks of the river were well above his head, and believing that he was well sheltered, he stripped, hanging his suit in the sunlight and letting the unusual heat of the day soothe his body. A raw fish, cornered in the shallows and scooped out, furnished one of the best meals he had ever tasted. He had reached for the suit, draped over a willow limb, when the first and only warning that his fortunes had once again changed came, swiftly, silently, and with deadly promise. One moment the willows had moved gently in the breeze, and then a spear suddenly set them all quivering. Ross, clutching the suit to him with a frantic grab, skated about in the sand, going to one knee in his haste he found himself completely at the mercy of the two men standing on the bank well above him. Unlike Ulfa's people or the beaker traders, they were very tall, with heavy braids of light or sun-bleached hair swinging forward on their wide chests. Their leather tunics hung to mid-thigh above leggings which were bound to their limbs with painted straps. Cuff bracelets of copper ringed their forearms, and necklaces of animal teeth and beads displayed their personal wealth." Ross could not remember having seen their like on any of the briefing tapes at the base. One spear had been a warning, but a second was held ready, so Ross made the age-old signal of surrender, reluctantly dropping his suit and raising his hands palm out and shoulder high. Friend? Ross asked in the beaker tongue. The traders ranged far, and perhaps there was a chance they had had contact with this tribe. The spear twirled and the younger stranger effortlessly leaped down the bank, paddling over to Ross to pick up the suit he had dropped, holding it up while he made some comment to his companion. He seemed fascinated by the fabric, pulling and smoothing it between his hands, and Ross wondered if there was a chance of trading it for his own freedom. Both men were armed, not only with the long-bladed daggers favored by the beaker folk, but also with axes. When Ross made a slight effort to lower his hands, the man before him reached to his belt axe, growling what was plainly a warning. Ross blinked, realizing that they might well knock him out and leave him behind, taking the suit with them. Finally, they decided in favor of including him in their loot. Throwing the suit over one arm, the stranger caught Ross by the shoulder and pushed him forward roughly. The pebbled beach was painful to Ross's feet, and the breeze which whipped about him as he reached the top of the bank reminded him only too forcibly of his ordeal in the glacial world. Murdoch was tempted to make a sudden dash out on the point of the bank and dive into the river, but it was already too late. The man who was holding the spear had moved behind him, and Ross's wrist, held in a vice grip at the small of his back— kept him prisoner as he was pushed on into the meadow. There three shaggy horses grazed, their nose-ropes gathered into the hands of a third man. A sharp stone half buried in the ground changed the pattern of the day. Ross's heel scraped against it, and the resulting pain triggered his rebellion into explosion. He threw himself backward, his bruised heel sliding between the feet of his captor bringing them both to the ground with himself on top. The other expelled air from his lungs in a grunt of surprise, and Ross whipped over, one hand grasping the hilt of the tribesman's dagger while the other, free of that prisoning wrist-lock, chopped at the fellow's throat. Dagger out and ready, Ross faced the men in a half-crouch as he had been drilled. They stared at him in open-mouthed amazement. Then too late the spears went up. "'Ross placed the point of his looted weapon "'at the throat of the now quiet man by whom he knelt, "'and he spoke the language he had learned from Ulfa's people. "'You strike, this one dies.' "'They must have read the determined purpose in his eyes, "'for slowly, reluctantly, the spears went down. "'Having gained so much of a victory, Ross dared more. "'Take,' he motioned to the waiting horses.' take and go. For a moment he thought that this time they would meet his challenge, but he continued to hold the dagger above the brown throat of the man who was now moaning faintly. His threat continued to register, for the other man shrugged the suit from his arm, left it lying on the ground, and retreated. Holding the nose-rope of his horse, he mounted, waved the herder up also, and both of them rode slowly away. The prisoner was slowly coming around, so Ross only had time to pull on the suit. He had not even fastened the breast studs before those blue eyes opened. A sunburned hand flashed to a belt, but the dagger and axe which had once hung there were now in Ross's possession. He watched the tribesmen carefully as he finished dressing. What you do? The words were in the speech of the forest people, distorted by a new accent. You go, Ross pointed to the third horse the others had left behind. I go, he indicated the river. I take these, he patted the dagger and the axe. The other scowled. Not good, Ross laughed a little hysterically. Not good you, he agreed. Good me. To his surprise, the tribesman's stiff face relaxed, and the fellow gave a bark of laughter. He sat up, rubbing at his throat, a big grin pulling at the corners of his mouth. You hunter? The man pointed northeast to the woodlands fringing the mountains. Ross shook his head. Trader, me. Trader, the other repeated. Then he tapped one of the wide metal cuffs at his wrist. Trade this? That, more things. Where? Ross pointed downstream. By bitter water, trade there. The man appeared puzzled. Why you here? Ride river water like you ride, he said, pointing to the horse. Ride on trees. Many trees tied together. Trees break apart. I come here. The conception of a raft voyage apparently got across, for the tribesman was nodding. Getting to his feet, he walked across to take up the nose rope of the waiting horse. You come, camp. Foskar Fosgar, chief. He like you. Show trick how you take Tulka. Make him sleep. Hold his axe. Knife. Ross hesitated. This Tulka seemed friendly now. But would that friendliness last? He shook his head. I go to Bitterwater. My chief there. Kulka was scowling again. You speak crooked words. Your chief there. He pointed eastward with a dramatic stretch of the arm. Your chief speak Foskar. Say he give much these. He touched his copper cuffs. Good knives, axes, get you back. Ross stared at him without understanding. Ash? Ash in this Fosgar's camp offering a reward for him? But how could that be? How you know my chief? Tolka laughed, this time derisively. You wear shining skin. Your chief wear shiny skin. He say find other shiny skin. Give many good things to man who bring you back. Shiny skin? The suit from the alien ship? Was it the ship people? Ross remembered the light on him as he climbed out of the Red Village. He must have been sighted by one of the spacemen. But why were they searching for him, alerting the natives in an effort to scoop him up? What made Ross Murdoch so important that they must have him? He only knew that he was not going to be taken if he could help it, that he had no desire to meet this chief who had offered treasure for his capture. "'You will come!' Tolka went into action, his mount flashing forward, almost in a running leap at Ross, who stumbled back when horse and rider loomed over him. He swung up the axe, but it was a weapon with which he had had no training, too heavy for him. As his blow met only thin air, the shoulder of the mount hit him, and Ross went down, avoiding by less than a finger's breadth the thud of an unshod hoof against his skull. Then the rider landed on him, crushing him flat. A fist connected with his jaw, and for Ross the sun went out. He found himself hanging across a support which moved with a rocking gait, whose pounding hurt his head, keeping him half dazed. Ross tried to move, but he realized that his arms were behind his back, fastened wrist to wrist, and a warm weight centered in the small of his spine to hold him face down on a horse. He could do nothing except endure the discomfort as best he could and hope for a speedy end to the gallop. Over his head passed the cackle of speech. He caught short glimpses of another horse matching pace to the one that carried him. Then they swept into a noisy place where the shouting of many men made a din. The horse stopped and Ross was pulled from its back and dropped to the trodden dust to lie blinking up dizzily "'trying to focus on the scene about him. "'They had arrived at the camp of the horsemen, "'whose hide tents served as a backdrop "'for the fair, long-haired giants "'and the tall women hovering about to view the captive. "'The circle about him then broke, "'and men stood aside for a newcomer. "'Ross had believed that his original captors "'were physically imposing, "'but this one was their master. "'Lying on the ground at the chieftain's feet,' Ross felt like a small and helpless child. Foscar, if Foscar this was, could not yet have entered middle age, and the muscles which moved along his arms and across his shoulders as he leaned over to study Tulka's prize made him bear strong. Ross glared up at him, that same hot rage which had led to his attack on Tulka now urging him to the only defiance he had left words. Look well, Foscar. Free me, and I would do more than look at you, he said in the speech of the woods hunters. Fosker's blue eyes widened, and he lowered a fist which could have swallowed in its grasp both of Ross's hands, linking those great fingers in the stuff of the suit and drawing the captive to his feet, with no sign that his act had required any effort. Even standing, Ross was a good eight inches shorter than the chieftain. Yet he put up his chin and eyed the other squarely, without giving ground. So, yet still my hands are tied, he put into that all the taunting inflection he could summon. His reception by Tulka had given him one faint clue to the character of these people. They might be brought to acknowledge the worth of one who stood up to them. Child, the fist shifted from its grip on the fabric covering Ross's chest to his shoulder, and now under its compulsion Ross swayed back and forth. Child! From somewhere Ross raised that short laugh. Ask Tulka. I be no child, Foskar. Tulka's axe, Tulka's knife. They were in my hand. A horse Tulka had to use to bring me down. Foskar regarded him intently and then grinned. "'Sharp tongue,' he commented. "'Tulka lost knife. Axe. Saw. So. "'N.R.' he called over his shoulder, "'and one of the men stepped out a pace beyond his fellows. "'He was shorter and much younger than his chief, "'with a boy's rangy slimness and an open, good-looking face, "'his eyes bright on Foskar with a kind of eager excitement. "'Like the other tribesmen, he was armed with belt, dagger, and axe. And since he wore two necklaces and both cuff bracelets and upper armlets, as did Foskar, Ross thought he must be a relative of the older man. Child! Foskar clapped his hand on Ross's shoulder and then withdrew the hold. Child! He indicated Enar, who reddened. You take from Enar axe, knife, Foskar ordered, as you took from Tolka. He made a sign, and someone cut the thongs about Ross's wrists. Ross rubbed one numbed hand against the other, setting his jaw. Fosker had stung his young follower with that contemptuous child, so the boy would be eager to match all his skill against the prisoner. This would not be as easy as his taking Tulka by surprise. But if he refused, Fosker might well order him killed out of hand, he had chosen to be defiant. He would have to do his best. Take axe. Knife. Foskar stepped back, waving at his men to open out a ring encircling the two young men. Ross felt a little sick as he watched Enar's hand go to the haft of the axe. Nothing had been said about Enar's not using his weapons in defense, but Ross discovered that there was some sense of sportsmanship in the tribesmen after all. It was Tulka who pushed to the chief's side and said something which made Fosgar roar bull-voiced at his youthful companion. Ennar's hand came away from the axe-hilt as if that polished wood were white-hot, and he transferred his discomfiture to Ross as the other understood. Ennar had to win now for his own pride's sake, and Ross felt he had to win for his life. They circled warily, "'Ross watching his opponent's eyes "'rather than those half-closed hands held at waist level. "'Back at the base, he had been matched with Ash, "'and before Ash, with the tough-bodied, "'skilled, and merciless trainers in unarmed combat. "'He had had beaten into his bruised flesh "'knowledge of holds and blows "'intended to save his skin in just such an encounter. "'But then he had been well-fed, alert, prepared.' He had not been knocked silly and then transported for miles, slung across a horse, after days of exposure and hard usage. It remained to be learned was Ross Murdoch as tough as he always thought himself to be? Tough or not, he was in this until he won, or dropped. Comments from the crowd aroused NR to the first definite action. He charged. Stooping low in a wrestler's stance, but Ross squatted even lower. One hand flicked to the churned dust of the ground and snapped up again, sending a cloud of grit into the tribesman's face. Then their bodies met with a shock, and NR sailed over Ross's shoulder to skid along the earth. Had Ross been fresh, the contest would have ended there and then in his favor. But when he tried to whirl and throw himself on his opponent, he was too slow. N.R. was not waiting to be pinned flat, and it was Ross's turn to be caught at a disadvantage. A hand shot out to catch his leg just above the ankle, and once again Ross obeyed his teaching, falling easily at that pull to land across his opponent. N.R., disconcerted by the too quick success of his attack, was unprepared for this. Ross rolled, trying to escape steel-fingered hands, his own chopping out in edgewise blows, striving to serve Enar as he had Tulka. He had to take a lot of punishment, though he managed to elude the powerful bear's hug in which he knew the other was laboring to engulf him, a hold which would speedily crush him into submission. Clinging to the methods he had been taught, he fought on, only now he knew, with a growing panic, that his best was not good enough. He was too spent to make an end. Unless he had some piece of great good luck, he could only delay his own defeat. Fingers clawed viciously at his eyes, and Ross did what he had never thought to do in any fight. He snapped wolfishly, his teeth closing on flesh as he brought up his knee and drove it home into the body wriggling on his. There was a gasp of hot breath in his face as Ross called upon the last few rags of his strength— Tearing loose from the other's slackened hold, he scrambled to one knee. Enar was also on his knees, crouching like a four-legged beast ready to spring. Ross risked everything on a last gamble. Clasping his hands together, he raised them as high as he could and brought them down on the nape of the other's neck. Enar sprawled forward, face down in the dust, where seconds later Ross joined him. CHAPTER Sixteen. Murdoch lay on his back, gazing up at the laced hides which stretched to make the tent roofing. Having been battered just enough to feel all one aching bruise, Ross had lost interest in the future. Only the present mattered, and it was a dark one. He might have fought N.R. to a standstill, but in the eyes of the horsemen he had also been beaten, and he had not impressed them as he had hoped. That he still lived was a minor wonder, but he deduced that he continued to breathe only because they wanted to exchange him for the reward offered by the aliens from out of time, an unpleasant prospect to contemplate. His wrists were lashed over his head to a peg driven deeply into the ground, his ankles were bound to another. He could turn his head from side to side, but any further movement was impossible, he ate only bits of food dropped into his mouth by a dirty-fingered slave, a cowed hunter captured from a tribe, overwhelmed in the migration of the horsemen. Ho! Taker of axes! A toe jarred into his ribs, and Ross bit back the grunt of pain which answered that rude bid for his attention. He saw in the dim light Enar's face, and was savagely glad to note the discolorations about the right eye and along the jawline, the signatures left by his own skinned knuckles. Ho, warrior, Ross returned hoarsely, trying to lade that title with all the scorn he could summon. Inar's hand, holding a knife, swung into his limited range of vision. To clip a sharp tongue is a good thing, the young tribesman grinned as he knelt down beside the helpless prisoner. Ross knew a thrill of fear worse than any pain. Enar might be about to do just what he hinted. Instead, the knife swung up and Ross felt the sawing at the cords about his wrists, enduring the pain in the raw gouges they had cut in his flesh with gratitude that it was not mutilation which had brought NR to him. He knew that his arms were free, but to draw them down from over his head was almost more than he could do, and he lay quiet as Nr loosed his feet. Up! Without N.R.'s hands pulling at him, Ross could not have reached his feet. Nor did he stay erect once he had been raised, crashing forward on his face as the other let him go, hot anger eating at him because of his own helplessness. In the end, N.R. summoned two slaves who dragged Ross into the open, where a council assembled about a fire. A debate was in progress, Sometimes so heated that the speakers fingered their knife or axe hilts when they shouted their arguments. Ross could not understand their language, but he was certain that he was the subject under discussion, and that Foscar had the deciding vote and had not yet given the nod to either side. Ross sat where the slaves had dumped him, rubbing his smarting wrists, so deathly weary in mind and beaten in body that he was not really interested in the fate they were planning for him. He was content merely to be free of his bonds, a small favor, but one he savored dully. He did not know how long the debate lasted, but at length Enar came to stand over him with a message. Your chief, he give many good things for you. Fosgar, take you to him. My chief is not here, Ross repeated wearily. Making a protest he knew they would not heed. My chief sits by the bitter water and waits. He will be angry if I do not come. Let Fosgar fear his anger. N.R. laughed. You run from your chief. He will be happy with Fosgar when you lie again under his hand. You will not like that. I think it so. I think so, too, Ross agreed silently. He spent the rest of that night lying between the watchful Anar and another guard, though they had the humanity not to bind him again. In the morning he was allowed to feed himself, and he fished chunks of venison out of a stew with his unwashed fingers. But in spite of the messiness, it was the best food he had eaten in days. The trip, however, was not to be a comfortable one. He was mounted on one of the shaggy horses, a rope run under the animal's belly to loop one foot to the other. Fortunately, his hands were bound so he was able to grasp the coarse, wiry mane and keep his seat after a fashion. The nose rope of his mount was passed to Tolka, and Enar rode beside him with only half an eye for the path of his own horse, and the balance of his attention for the prisoner. They headed northeast, with the mountains as a sharp green and white goal against the morning sky. Though Ross's sense of direction was not too acute, he was certain that they were making for the general vicinity of the hidden village, which he believed the ship people had destroyed. He tried to discover something of the nature of the contact which had been made between the aliens and the horsemen. How find other chief? he asked N.R. The young man tossed one of his braids back across his shoulder, and turned his head to face Ross squarely. Your chief, come our camp. Talk with Fosgar. Two, four sleeps ago. How talk with Fosgar? With hunter talk? For the first time, N.R. did not appear altogether certain. He scowled, and then snapped, He talk, Fosgar, us. We hear right words, not woods, creeper, talk, he speak to us good. Ross was puzzled. How could the alien out of time speak the proper language of a primitive tribe some thousands of years removed from his own era? Were the ship people also familiar with time travel? Did they have their own stations of transfer? Yet their fury with the reds had been hot. This was a complete mystery. This chief, he looked like me? Again, Enar appeared at a loss. "'He wear covering like you.' "'But was he like me?' persisted Ross. "'He didn't know what he was trying to learn, "'only that it seemed important at that moment "'to press home to at least one of the tribesmen "'that he was different from the man "'who had put a price on his head "'and to whom he was to be sold.' "'Not like,' Tolka spoke over his shoulder. "'You look like hunter-people. "'Hair eyes.' strange chief no hair on head eyes not like you saw him too ross demanded eagerly i saw i ride to camp they come so stand on rock call to fosgar make magic with fire it jump up he pointed his arm stiffly at a bush before them on the trail they point little little spear fire come out of the ground and burn They say burn our camp if we do not give them man. We say not have man. Then they say many good things for us if we find and bring man. But they are not my people, Ross cut in. You see, I have hair. I am not like them. They are bad. You may be taken in war by them, chief's slave." Enar had a reply to that which was logical according to the customs of his own tribe. They want slave back. It is so. My people strong too much magic, Ross pushed. Take me to Bitter Water and they pay much more than stranger chief. Both tribesmen were amused. Where Bitter Water? asked Tolka. Ross jerked his head to the west. Some sleeps away. ''Some sleeps,'' repeated N.R. jeeringly. ''We ride some sleeps, maybe many sleeps, where we know not the trails. Maybe no people there, maybe no bitter water. All things you say with split tongue so that we not give you back to master. We go this way, not even one sleep. Find chief, get good things. Why we do hard thing when we can do easy?'' What argument could Ross offer in rebuttal to the simple logic of his captors? For a moment he raged inwardly at his own helplessness. But long ago he had learned that giving away to hot fury was no good unless one did it deliberately to impress, and then only when one had the upper hand. Now Ross had no hand at all. For the most part they kept to the open, whereas Ross and the other two agents had skulked in wooded areas on their flight through this same territory. So they approached the mountains from a different angle, and though he tried, Ross could pick out no familiar landmarks. If by some miracle he was able to free himself from his captors, he could only head due west and hope to strike the river. At midday, their party made camp in a grove of trees by a spring. The weather was as unseasonably warm as it had been the day before, and flies, brought out of cold-weather hiding, attacked the stamping horses and crawled over Ross. He tried to keep them off with swings of his bound hands, for their bites drew blood. Having been tumbled from his mount, he remained fastened to a tree with a noose about his neck, while the horsemen built a fire and broiled strips of deer meat. It would seem that Foscar was in no hurry to get on. Since after they had eaten, the men continued to lounge at ease, some even dropping off to sleep. When Ross counted faces, he learned that Tulka and another had both disappeared, possibly to contact and warn the aliens they were coming. It was mid-afternoon before the scouts reappeared, as unobtrusively as they had gone. They went before Foscar with a report which brought the chief over to Ross. We go. Your chief waits. Ross raised his swollen, bitten face and made his usual protest. Not my chief. Foscar shrugged. He say so. He give good things to get you back under his hand. So, he your chief. Once again, Ross was boosted on his mount and bound. But this time the party split into two groups as they rode off. He was with Enar again, just behind Foscar with two other guards bringing up the rear. The rest of the men, leading their mounts, melted into the trees. Ross watched that quiet withdrawal speculatively. It argued that Foscar did not trust those he was about to do business with, that he was taking certain precautions of his own. Only Ross could not see how that distrust, which might be only ordinary prudence on Foscar's part, could in any way be an advantage for him. They rode at a pace hardly above a walk, into a small open meadow narrowing at the east. Then, for the first time, Ross was able to place himself. They were at the entrance to the valley of the village, about a mile away from the narrow throat above which Ross had lain to spy, and had been captured, for he had come from the north over the spurs of rising ridges. Ross's horse was pulled up as Foscar drove his heel into the ribs of his own mount, and "'sending it at a brisker pace toward the neck of the valley. "'There was a blot of blue there. "'More than one of the aliens were waiting. "'Ross caught his lip between his teeth and bit down on it hard. "'He had stood up to the Reds, to Fosgar's tribesmen, "'but he shrank from meeting those strangers with an odd fear "'that the worst the men of his own species could do "'would be but a pale shadow to the treatment he might meet at their hands.' Foscar was now a toy man astride a toy horse. He halted his galloping mount to sit facing the handful of strangers. Ross counted four of them. They seemed to be talking, though there was still a good distance separating the mounted man and the blue suits. Minutes passed before Foscar's arm raised in a wave to summon the party guarding Ross. Enar kicked his horse to a trot, towing Ross's mount behind, the other two men flooding along more discreetly. Ross noted that they were both armed with spears which they carried to the fore as they rode. They were perhaps three-quarters of the way to join Fosgar, and Ross could see plainly the bald heads of the aliens as their faces turned in his direction. Then the strangers struck. One of them raised a weapon shaped similarly to the automatic Ross knew, except that it was longer in the barrel. Ross did not know why he cried out, except that Foskar had only an axe and dagger which were both still sheathed at his belt. The chief sat very still, and then his horse gave a swift sidewise swerve as if in fright. Foscar collapsed, limp, bonelessly to the trodden turf, to lie unmoving, face down. Enar whooped, a cry combining defiance and despair in one. He reined up with violence enough to set his horse rearing, Then, dropping his hold on the leading rope of Ross's mount, he whirled and set off in a wild dash for the trees to the left. A spear lanced across Ross's shoulder, ripping at the blue fabric, but his horse whirled to follow the other, taking him out of danger of a second thrust. Having lost his opportunity, the man who had wielded the spear dashed by at Enar's back. Ross clung to the mane with both hands. His greatest fear was that he might slip from the saddle-pad and since he was tied by his feet, lie unprotected and helpless under those dashing hoofs. Somehow he managed to cling to the horse's neck, his face lashed by the rough mane while the animal pounded on. Had Ross been able to grasp the dangling nose rope, he might have had a faint chance of controlling that run, but as it was he could only hold fast and hope. He had only broken glimpses of what lay ahead. Then a brilliant fire as vivid as the flames which had eaten up the red village, burst from the ground a few yards ahead, sending the horse wild. There was more fire, and the horse changed course through the rising smoke. Ross realized that the aliens were trying to cut him off from the thin safety of the woodlands. Why didn't they just shoot him as they had Fosgar? He could not understand. The smoke of the burning grass was thick, cutting between him and the woods, Might it also provide a curtain behind which he could hope to escape both parties? The fire was sending the horse back toward the waiting ship-people. Ross could hear a confused shouting in the smoke. Then his mount made a miscalculation, and a tongue of red licked too close. The animal screamed, dashing on blindly straight between two of the blazes and away from the blue-clad men. Ross coughed, almost choking his eyes watering as the stench of singed hair thickened the smoke. But he had been carried out of the fire circle and was shooting back into the meadowland. Mount and unwilling rider were well away from the upper end of that cleared space when another horse cut in from the left, matching speed to the uncontrolled animal to which Ross clung. It was one of the tribesmen riding easily. The trick worked, for the wild race slowed to a gallop and the other rider in a feat of horsemanship at which Ross marvelled, leaned from his seat to catch the dangling nose-rope, bringing the runaway against his own steady steed. Ross, shaken, still coughing from the smoke and unable to sit upright, held to the mane. The gallop slowed to a rocking pace and finally came to a halt, both horses blowing, white foam patches on their chests and their riders' legs. Having made his capture— The tribesmen seemed indifferent to Ross, looking back instead at the wide curtain of grass smoke, frowning as he studied the swift spread of the fire, muttering to himself. He pulled the lead rope and brought Ross's horse to follow in the direction from which Enar had brought the captive less than a half hour earlier. Ross tried to think. The unexpected death of their chief might well mean his own should the tribe's desire for vengeance now be aroused. On the other hand... There was a faint chance that he could now better impress them with the thought that he was indeed of another clan, and that to aid him would be to work against a common enemy. But it was hard to plan clearly, though wits alone could save him now. The parley which had ended with Foscar's murder had brought Ross a small measure of time. He was still a captive, even though of the tribesmen and not the unearthly strangers.' Perhaps to the ship-people these primitives were hardly higher in scale than the forest animals. Ross did not try to talk to his present guard, who towed him into the western sun of late afternoon. They halted at last in that same small grove where they had rested at noon. The tribesmen fastened the mounts and then walked around to inspect the animal Ross had ridden. With a grunt he loosened the prisoner and spilled him unceremoniously on the ground while he examined the horse. Ross levered himself up to sight the mark of the burn across that roan hide where the fire had blistered the skin. Thick handfuls of mud from the side of the spring were brought and plastered over the seared strip. Then, having rubbed down both animals with twists of grass, the man came over to Ross, pushed him back to the ground, and studied his left leg. Ross understood By rights, his thigh should also have been scorched where the flame had hit, yet he had felt no pain. Now, as the tribesmen examined him for a burn, he could not see even the faintest discoloration of the strange fabric. He remembered how the aliens had strolled unconcerned through the burning village. As the suit had insulated him against the cold of the ice, so it would seem that it had also protected him against the fire, for which he was duly thankful." His escape from injury was a puzzle to the tribesmen, who, failing to find any trace of burn on him, left Ross alone and went to sit well away from his prisoner as if he feared him. They did not have long to wait. One by one, those who had ridden in Foscar's company gathered at the grove. The very last to come were Enar and Tolka, carrying the body of their chief. The faces of both men were smeared with dust, and when the others sighted the body, They, too, rubbed dust into their cheeks, reciting a string of words and going one by one to touch the dead chieftain's right hand. Enar, resigning his burden to the others, slid from his tired horse and stood for a long moment, his head bowed. Then he gazed straight at Ross and came across the tiny clearing to stand over the man of a later time. The boyishness which had been a part of him when he had fought at Fosgar's command was gone. His eyes were merciless as he leaned down to speak, shaping each word with slow care so that Ross could understand the promise, that frightful promise. "'Woods Rat!' "'Fosgar goes to his burial fire, and he shall take a slave with him to serve him beyond the sky, a slave to run at his voice, to shake when he thunders. Slave Dog, you shall run for Fosgar beyond the sky.' and he shall have you forever to walk upon as a man walks upon the earth. I, N.R., swear that Fosgar shall be sent to the chiefs in the sky in all honor, and that you, Dog One, shall lie at his feet in that going. He did not touch Ross, but there was no doubt in Ross's mind that he meant every word he spoke.